Welcome, everybody. Hey, so we're, um, we're in week three of Joseph. Week three of Joseph. All right. Come on. Anybody excited about being in the story of Joseph today? All right. There we go. There we go. <laughs> well, um, Chad's preaching for us this morning. I'm very excited. And I'm going to read the text, and then I want to bring, I want to bring Chad up and, um, and just say a few words about him and then let him go for it. So um, let me read the word of God. This is our third series in Life's Pain and God's Purposes, and today we are in Genesis chapter 41. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. You'll remember Joseph was in the pit, in prison, forgotten. After two whole years, did you catch that? After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all of the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the seven, the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke, and I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, seven ears withered, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years, and the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. 
It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them will also arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be known in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. For it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore... Let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Joseph rises to power. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all of the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name. I'm going to go for it here. <laughs> all right, here we go. Here we... Zephithanath Paniah. And he gave him mar in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he returned the when he entered the service of king of the Pharaoh king of Egypt. Remember he was 17 when he got kidnapped. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt, and during the seven plentiful years the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Chad, come on up here. I want to just introduce you, and even though everyone knows you, uh, come on up. I want to introduce you and pray for you. Um, Chad's going to preach this morning. A couple things I love about Chad is he is an outreach catalyst, and that means he knows how to go up in the community and stir up reaching out in the community. But here's what I love about him too, is he brings people along with him. 
and he knows how to disciple people and lead other people in, in doing outreach with them. So I'm excited that he's here to preach today, and I'm just going to pray for him. Lord Jesus, be with Chad as he preaches. Be with us as we hear the word. I do pray that you would use this, uh, this message now to bring deeper love for you in our hearts, a bolder action for you in our community, and more uh, serving and loving of one another. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 How's everyone doing today? Yeah. Uh, Trisha, it's good to see you. Wow, it's been a little while. Man. Um, so, um, we pick it up in the book of Genesis. We're looking at the life of Joseph. Obviously, we've read through this chapter. It's pretty lengthy. But we come to this pivotal chapter. And it's really pivotal in the story of Genesis because it really sets the stage, not just for the life of Joseph, but for the rest of the story of Israel as a people. Um, and we'll get to see that later on if you read the books of Exodus and on. Have you ever seen the movie Gen uh, Genesis, uh, Gladiator? If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, yes, two hands in the air, yes, yes. Has anyone else? Yes, very good movie, yes, one of the best of all time. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, it's a fictional story of this general, of this Roman army. His name is Maximus, and he's faithful to the Emperor Caesar, right? And uh, what's interesting is that the story takes a lot of little plot twists and turns. You might actually see some parallels in the book of Genesis, especially in J Joseph's life. Um, but in a sense, the story, when you get to watching it, it's not about a hero trying to save a damsel in distress, and it's not about uh, a general who's trying to conquer and take over the emperor's seat. In the end, the story is really about a man, a virtuous man. He's a man of war, but he really just wants to return home to his wife and kid. It, the story is basically about a man just wanting to go home. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Maybe in college um, you've experienced homesickness uh, when you've gone away for the first time. Or maybe the first time you moved away from your parents' household, right? And it was like new and you had this homesickness about you. I've had the opportunity to lead a lot of students on the campus that are international students. And it's always kind of tricky around the holiday season because a lot of them, they can't go back home. And while they're here, it's hard for them to find a place here. And so while they're here, they may have dinner and food with somebody, but it's not home for them, and they can't reach home. And I can't imagine what it's like for Syrian refugees now, if you see what's going on in the news. Um, it's like a war-torn area. It looks like the most desolate of places, and yet uh, many of them have lost all of their families, have no place to go to, really, and no place to go back to. And if you've heard on the news this past week in Haiti with Hurricane Matthew, and yet we were spared, and hundreds of Haitian family, they have no place to go to. They've lost their loved ones. And so even what right now, they're displaced, and they have no place to go and nothing to go back to. And what's interesting is that this is right where we find Joseph in this story. If you remember from last week, Joseph is sold into slavery, right? He's promoted to the highest rank of a slave master's house, and then he's accused of rape, that which he didn't do, unjustly charged, and he's placed in prison. He provides a plea bargain for people, and yet uh, the deal goes south, and he's forgotten, right? He can't go back home, and yet there's nothing back home for him. 
and there's no place to go to. He's alone, right? He's left to deal with the scorn of rejection, and yet he's remaining faithful where he's planted. It's painful for Joseph. There's pain in Egypt. We see here in the first two chapters, or in the first two words of this chapter, after two whole years, John made mention of that. Two whole years passed by between the last scene and this scene. Two whole years where he was promised or told. Um, he tells the cupbearer, you know, when, when things go well for you when, you, when I get out of this predicament, or when you get out of this predicament, would you remember me? I was unjustly accused, I was charged, I was put in this place, and I don't deserve to be here. Would you remember me? So imagine Joseph just waiting for that word from the cupbearer to be sentenced, to be pardoned, to get out of prison. And those days turned to weeks. His, his hope has swelled, right? And then after weeks go by and months go by, that hope starts to wane. And after about two whole years, you can imagine that that hope is long faded. Reality is set in, and I can imagine Joseph wondering if this is going to be the rest of his life, if God had really put him on the shelf. And at this point in Joseph's narrative, we've seen this roller coaster, right? We've seen some blessing, God has blessed him, and yet some, some extremely low uh, turn of events. Now it seems as though God has put Joseph on the shelf. He had grown up in privilege, loved by his father, and, that, and yet the victim of mutiny at the hands of his own half-brothers, given remarkable favor by God, the master of Potiphar's house, in a sense, only to be falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And then in jail, he's in charge over all of his inmates, only to be forgotten uh, as he selflessly helps one. Oftentimes, we too, we feel like we're forgotten. We're forgotten by God. We're forgotten by family, even by Christian community. And, and I know that hurts. I can imagine what folks in Haiti are feeling right now. They're, they're forgotten, right? Uh, Richard Dawkins, he's a famous atheist. He says that the reason people struggle so mightily in the face of suffering is because they will not accept that it never has any purpose. The desire to make suffering intelligible is one of the, the, the dignifying peculiarities of our species. So Richard Dawkins doesn't believe that there's any purpose behind our suffering. Dawkins, along with other atheists, deny the idea that suffering has any real purpose. And they would also deny that there's any real purpose outside of their own existence. But then that would also mean that the starving children that we see in our infomercials, the, the pictures that you get of Haiti this past week, that that also serves no purpose. And without purpose, there's no hope. Without no hope in the face of suffering, in the face of our own suffering, it almost leads to what some would say it's an internal suicide. If you look at the way America deals with tragedy, it's often tragic. What happens is something will happen in the news, right? And we see this over, we've seen this over the summer, right? The, the club shootings, we've seen it this past week. And what America tends to do is we are people that are set on because, like, we don't want something like what's happening in the news to, to ru ruin our parade. We kind of just, we, we hold on and say, let's just get through this week, 
right? Let's just get through this week, and then it'll be forgotten, and we can move on with the rest of our lives, right? We're not really good at entering into other people's pain. And so they have that mindset. If we just get through this, then it'll, it'll all get back to normal. But notice how that's true for the people that watch on the news. And it's true for everyone else except for who? For the victims and their families, right? We generalize suffering almost as pointless to the point where we're so good at ignoring it that we'd rather just not confront it. The beauty of the Christian faith is that it, it, it acknowledges suffering, right? In the Christian faith, it doesn't dismiss suffering, and yet it doesn't try to explain it away as though it was deserved. The Christian story calls it what it is. Suffering is real. Life sucks at times. It will be painful. Suffering exists, but yet it's not without purpose. Our pain is never purposeless. We are described in Scripture as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Why? Because our pain is not without purpose. Because what we see here, as we see in the life of Joseph, is that there is also providence. That in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, there's also providence. There's providence in Egypt. Because God is up to something behind the scenes in the life of Joseph. He doesn't have in mind one singular person in the story of Joseph, but he has an entire nation. So he's not just thinking about one person. He's thinking about the entire nation and the surrounding nations. So, so, so Pharaoh, if we pick it up, has these dreams that no one can interpret, right? Not even Pharaoh himself. Weird dreams, nonsensical dreams about fat cows and skinny cows, about corn. And yet, as weird as these dreams are, God uses these dreams not just to change the story of Joseph, but also Israel's story. We see that in the first part of this chapter. Pharaoh gets these dreams, and then, all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers. Oh, snap. I remember my offenses today. Welcome to the story, cupbearer. He tells Pharaoh, mentions, that there's this man that he interpreted our dreams when we were in prison. He also happens to be a Hebrew. Now, that's very significant because of what happens later on in Joseph's story, and we'll look at that. So they bring Joseph out of the pit in verse 14, take him before Pharaoh, where he lays these dreams out, hoping that this Hebrew foreigner can make sense of them. In verse 15 and 16, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, can interpret it. Then Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So what Joseph does here when asked if he can interpret is he confidently yet humbly points at God, taking spotlight off of himself and onto God who can interpret his dreams. So it's not as though God, uh, Joseph had, had given this gift that he's going to hoard it. He's actually going to give credit to God. And what makes this so interesting is that Pharaoh in the eyes of Egyptians is viewed as a God, one amongst many. And Pharaoh cannot even interpret his own dreams, right? There is many other gods in the Mediterranean, and yet Joseph points to this one God, right? 
No one can uh, interpret the dreams, uh, no magician or soothsayer. And yet, in a sense, Pharaoh, when he hears about this idea of famine, right? So these cows and these corns is going to equate to seven years of plentiful, followed by seven years of famine. But yet, Pharaoh doesn't turn to the goddess of the harvest and the Egyptian lore. And there is one. No, he turns to the God of Joseph. What you see here is that God from early on, even in this narrative, he's not just dealing with Joseph, but he's making his name known to a foreign pharaoh, an Egyptian pharaoh who doesn't know of this Hebrew God. Obviously, we'll read about in the story of Exodus, but even before then, he's making his name and his power known to a non-Hebrew, to someone like Pharaoh. So Pharaoh even acknowledges in verse 38, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. So God has used the last two years in the life of Joseph while he was in uh, in prison to position him right next to Pharaoh. And it prepares this nation for this famine that's about to take place. And yet it's still quite a few years off. This is seven years off. This past week, we had meteorologists that couldn't really give us hour to hour the swing of the hurricane. And yet Joseph is able to, by the Spirit of God, tell us seven years out what's about to happen. See, God in His providence has used the sin of jealous and reviling half-brothers to place Joseph where he ended up in Egypt. And Joseph Joseph had been given this gift by God, this weird gift of interpreting dreams to put him next to Pharaoh, that in the process, not only would God preserve his Hebrew people, that we'll see in later weeks, but also make himself known to Pharaoh, make himself known amongst the Hebrew people that they'll tell years and years hence. It's providence, God working on behalf of his covenant people. So when we read that Pharaoh hears these dreams interpreted, what's interesting is that Joseph then goes and tells Pharaoh what he should do, right? Go ahead and appoint somebody and then have him gather one-fifth of all of the harvest in these plentiful years that we could save them up. What's interesting and ironic is that Joseph's telling somebody what he would do, and yet he's telling them what what they're going to do, right? And so Pharaoh looks at this and says, uh, you're the guy. You have the plan, right? You, you've seen what's about to happen. You have the plan. That's you. Take that on, bro. Pharaoh goes and promotes Joseph second in command, right? After all these years, after all of these ebbs and flows of, of blessing followed by unfortunate events, it seems as though Joseph has made it. And this is where many people listening to the story, they, te- they tend to exhale, Right? They tend to lean back. Many go for a bathroom break. Because he's finally made it, right? He's made it to where he needs to go. And that's where this shift happens, where it seems as though the tide has turned for the better. That is on the up and up for Joseph now. And yet this is where many folks miss the point of the story. This is where many folks miss this pivotal turn in this most pivotal chapter. So in this story, you see providence. 
And yet you see this potential for this Hollywood script that's being written out, right? That if you just stick it out, it'll go well for you. That if you just remain faithful, that at the end you'll have blessings. And so it would seem for the life of Joseph. After all, he's at this point second in command only to Pharaoh. But if we look a little closer, we'll see something different. See, when Joseph is first brought to Pharaoh in verse 14, right? He, he, he shaves himself probably because he was told to, and he puts on a different set of clothes. This is most likely, scholars say, to present himself in a manner worthy to be in front of Pharaoh. Because remember, G- Egyptians were cleanly shaven, shaved heads, shaved faces, and so he appears before Pharaoh looking like an Egyptian. Then when Joseph is promoted, He's given the signet ring, which kind of stamps and signs most of the creeds and uh, letters by the Pharaoh, along with a gold chain, right? So now he, sound, he looks more hip-hop than he does Egyptian. And he's given fine linen, right? This is most likely what an Egyptian aristocracy would be wearing back then. Then lastly, Pharaoh renames Joseph and gives him the name, John said it, Zaphonith Paneah, and gives him an Egyptian wife named Asenath, which means she who belongs to Neath, which is an Egyptian goddess. And she is the daughter of a priest in this place of On, which is the central location for the worship of the Egyptian god Ra, the sun god. Do you see what's happening here? Right? Where it, where it seems as though Joseph is on the up and up. When we look closer, we see that Joseph's appearance changes along with his dress. He undergoes, undergoes a name change, and then he's given a wife, not of his heritage, all of which would have been outlawed if you were a Hebrew, all of which is outlawed in the Mosaic law, still yet to come. And then in verse 46, it says, Joseph was 30 years old when he had entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, what age was he when he was sold into slavery? You guys remember? 17, which means that 13 years had passed between him with family and him now in Egypt. 13 years since Joseph had worshipped in his Hebrew community. 13 years since he had prayed with his family to the Hebrew God. 13 years since he had sang any songs to God in a worship setting. Keep in mind that the scriptures hadn't been written yet. It wasn't like there was a memory verse for the day to kind of get him through his struggles, right? To help him battle and wrestle with doubt and despair. Do we see now how this story isn't about the American dream packaged in Hebrew Judaica paper, right? The Joseph story is one of the rise of influence at the expense of his own Hebrew heritage. Keep in mind that Joseph, at this point in the story, is still a slave. Even with all of Egypt under his command, with the exception of Pharaoh, he's still made to be acceptable in the sight of most. And in order to do that, he does that by becoming one of them. So it would seem acceptable, with all the time that had passed, 13 years, with all the Egyptian influence having a say-so over what Joseph is to look like, what his name should be, and even who his wife should be, which I should remind you, if you have a wife or are looking for a wife or have a spouse, husband, it's one of the more intimate and reorienting things in your life. You guys know this. 
And it would have been easy for Joseph just to adopt Egypt's religion as well, right? I mean, think about it. I've heard of many church horror stories where people come from bad church churches, right? Or they've been burned by the church. I see that in my religion class all the time. But I've never heard a story where your own brothers want you dead and they sell you off into slavery. And they're part of your own heritage. They worship the same God you worship. It would have been so easy for Joseph to say, sorry, cash the chips in, said this is a a change of management, and he would hop on the other side. And yet Joseph doesn't do that. He doesn't jump ship. And he doesn't have an identity crisis. No, Joseph remains completely faithful in his Hebrew heritage. How do we know this? What in the scripture lets us know that this is true? Well, before the famine hits, which happens to be another six years, right? So before the famine hits, before that, the year before that, Joseph has two sons. This Verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all of my hardship in all of my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. In the names Joseph gives to his son, he's letting us into his inner life of devotion. Back then, there was nothing more intimate than than naming your children. And it gives us a peek of what Joseph is really about. So the name Manasseh means that God has caused Joseph to forget all of his hardship. From his family in Egypt And the name of Ephraim suggests the same, that God had caused him to be fruitful in the land of his affliction. What I want us to see here is pivotal, and it's it's really two things. One, that both of the names let us know that what happened to Joseph, the hardship and the affliction, both of those matter. They matter to Joseph. It wasn't like he denied them or he tried to explain them away, thinking that he deserved this. That something had come upon his life, and so, uh, or because of some sin in his life, he acknowledges that that hurt was real. All the pain, the suffering, all the injustice, the abandonment, the, him being forsaken, the betrayal, everything mattered. He didn't dismiss it or deny it. The second thing I want us to see is that he acknowledges God's promised presence in his life. Because despite all that Joseph went through, it was God who caused Joseph to help him ease his pain by forgetting it, by letting it go. And despite what some scholars say, Jesus wasn't like, or Joseph wasn't like, I'm done with family, forget family. Because actually what we see chapters later is that he strives to bring all of his family together when we hear next week about reconciliation. But we see promise in Egypt. Within all the years that has gone, all the influences that Joseph has had upon his life, there's this common theme running throughout, and that it's God's endless empowering presence in the life of Joseph. Remember last week, we saw over and over how the Lord was with Joseph. Think about this. That God was with Joseph as he was at watch over his father's flocks. God was with Joseph 
as he watched over Potiphar's house. God was with Joseph as he watched over the prison inmates. And now God is at, he is with Joseph as he oversees all of Egypt. God empowered Joseph for all of this. And God's closeness was so real to Joseph that the level of intimacy that he experienced with Joseph was, it far surpassed anything that he could have from a slave owner's wife, even when anything, everything around him nudged him to just go for it. And it had to be God's comforting words that he would share with Joshua that would say, I will never leave you nor forsake you when he had been left behind, not just by his brothers, by the cupbearer and everybody in between. In all of these things, God was present. God never took a 15 minute and left Joseph for his own means. Never took a nap and hoped the best for Joseph. He never took a sick day and hoped Joseph would follow the leader's guide. Right? We read in Psalm 121.4 that he who watches over Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. And it is as true for us as it was true for Israel. It is as true for us today as it is for Joseph. God is with us, watching over us. So what does that mean for us? If you find yourself in a season where things are going well in your life, praise God. By all means, praise God. God has given us all things to enjoy. This, this life, all the blessings therein. But let us not overtake us. And let it not deceive us into thinking that this is all that there is. Let all those blessings nudge us into this yearning for something more. And I'm not talking about the American dream. I'm not talking about health, wealth, and happiness. There's a recent TED Talk out there where this journalist by the name of Courtney Martin, she describes that this generation is unlike any other generation. So in this generation, we actually believe that our, our children are not as better off as we are. And so what it's doing with this generation is causing us to reinvent what we think of when we think of the American dream, right? The American dream is not defined by a beautiful family of 2.1 kids and a beautiful house with a white picket fence. Folks are opting for renting over homeowning. Matter of fact, in terms of homeowning, it's the lowest that it's been since 95. Our income is more moderate than ever. And by 2020, people are saying 50% of the workforce is going to be freelancers. And what they're noticing is that people are opting for the freedom that they have and to love what they're doing, even at the expense of a moderate income. That they're redefining the American dream, where it's no longer how much you make, what's in your garage, and how many, uh, what, what, like, what's in your wallet right? No, the American dream is defined by many, by Martin here, she would say, community and creativity. Those are the two things that are defining the American dream amongst millennials. And both of these values point to something more. C.S. Lewis said this, he says, if, you find our, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, it most probably, it, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Meaning that if this world and all of its desires has something that nothing within us can quench, means that we were made for another world. And these ideas of creativity and community point us to something more. Remember, folks, 
This is still Egypt. So let's not clutch on to the blessings too tightly that we forget what we're really after. The Christian faith teaches that one day we will rule and reign with God. Right? And in terms of community, we will commune with the triune God and we will gather before the throne, every tribe, tongue, and language, worshiping the slain God, the slain Lamb of God. And this is all possible because of the darkest moment in all of redemptive history. And that can speak to us in our most difficult times. So if you're going through a rough time right now, and you find yourself in the pit, what's interesting is that this is right where we need to be sometimes. If you were part of our Google Hangout this past week, Carol, John, Ellie, we spoke about, we thought through some different things throughout the Joseph narrative, but when we talked about God's presence at work in the bleakest of times, we, we came up this idea, with this idea, right? Just imagine the disciples following Jesus, right, for three years, and then you see the disciples, right, thinking of their fallen Messiah, crucified at the cross, their rabbi, their promised Messiah, this reluctant king of the Jews, he had been found guilty of blasphemy, claiming himself to be God, sentenced to death by crucifixion, and then he's crucified, right? Nailed to a cross where he'll forgive his accusers, he'll cry out and scream to his father before he gives up his last breath. Everyone got that picture? Imagine you're one of those disciples, Think, it, what, think of what it must have been like for them the day after, right? Their Messiah, whom they've given everything for, three years invested heavily, whom they've left everything for. They've left vocation, family, the comforts of home, and this Messiah is now dead. In their minds, they had envisioned him as taking the crown and, and like, like the King David coming to bring his people back to conquer the oppressive uh, armies of Rome and the empire. They're so shocked and distraught by this that some of them actually go back to their former life, picking up the broken pieces of the last three years. But if they only understood, if sometimes if we only understand that Jesus, what Jesus had planned during the time of the disciples' dismay. That it was necessary, not just for Judea, but for all the world. If the disciples only considered that in their darkest moment, when literal darkness covered the earth, that behind the scenes, God was up to His his most beautiful act. That God was actually redeeming all of mankind through Jesus' voluntary sacrifice. He, He gave up His life. Nobody took it from Him. And he did so in order to take on the sins of the entire world. And then he defeated death by rising from the dead three days after, proving that darkness, sin, disease, pain does not have the last word. That there is resurrection life and that this life, if we trust in Jesus, that the Spirit of God, the living God, now lives in us, would we consider that even when things appear darkest for us, God may actually be working 
a beautiful act, not just on your behalf, but for his glory. So where does this reality, the promise of God's presence, take us this morning as we close out? And how do we respond to this truth? Well, if you find yourself in these hard places, remember what I just shared. Remember the story of the gospel. That's, that in a way, whatever has happened to you, however you, you, you look at your past, however your past may define you or think that it defines you, more than what God has said and spoken over you, it's helpful to remember that we're not defined by our trials or even our current hardship, but by a faithful God who has promised his presence for us. We see this in the life of Joseph, and we see this most clearly, most perfectly in the power of the cross. And what about the opposite? What if things are going all well with you? What if things are finally beginning to shift in your life? You've got that job. You found that somebody, right? You closed on that house. Well, if you're on the brighter side of things, remember that the story of Joseph doesn't end where we think it ends. It doesn't shift pivotally towards the greater and the better. That no matter how good things may seem here on earth, as with Joseph, this is not our home. We're still in Egypt. Joseph is still a slave. That we're still sojourners on our way until we arrive home with Jesus, that our best life is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and ask now that these words and this story of Joseph would reside in us, but it will only point to the power of the cross when we find ourselves in difficult times or even when we find ourselves in comfort. Lord, that we would continue to think back to the life of Jesus, to the life of Joseph and say, whether good nor rain, nor sun, nor, sh- nor, nor, nor sleet, nor anything else, Lord, help us to remember that we're not home. And so that there's a comfort in pointing forward to us, being with you in all of eternity. And yet, we can trust that even right now, you're with us. And so in either case, Lord, we cannot lose. We'll have you with us. And then we get to come home to you. And so help us to remember those words. Help us to remember the power of the gospel. And we ask all of this in your name. Amen.